Thanks to Hannah. Thanks, James, for reading. Uh, please keep that passage open. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for all your word. Uh, the parts that we find easy to accept and other parts that challenge us. And we are aware before you this, this evening that this is one of those parts of your word. And we pray that uh, what it is you need to say to your people, you would say. And for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, today marks the last Sunday of winter. I'm not sure if you're watching your calendars quite that closely. Spring's almost upon us, which means summer, just around the corner. Like most of you, I imagine, I spent most of my summers growing up out in the sun. I used to play a lot of cricket, spend a lot of time at the beach. Even though these days, though, I don't play cricket anymore and I don't go to the beach as much, I virtually, like every other Australian, spend every day of my summer out in the sun in some way or another. That is just what we do as Australians. And because that's just what we do as Australians, the Cancer Council a few years ago felt the need to make this series of ads. You may remember these ads. There are a few of them. The script was always the same. They depicted people playing sport in the park, maybe or sunbathing on a beach, and the camera would kind of zoom out and then zoom onto their skin and then through their skin into the bloodstream. And as it went through the bloodstream, this voiceover would go and this is what it would say it would say tanning is skin cells in trauma trying to protect themselves from cancer but a melanoma just one centimeter deep can get into your bloodstream and spread so even if a melanoma is cut out the cancer can reappear months or years later often in your heart liver or brain and you haven't even started to burn yet there's nothing healthy about a tan and the reason why the Cancer Council made those ads was to raise awareness of the subtly, the subtly devastating effects of UV rays. That it's not just the third degree sunburn that's a problem. We all recognise that. Even something seemingly as innocuous as a mild tan is in fact skin cells in trauma, apparently. And the intent is to provoke us, isn't it? To take seriously the very real consequences of sun exposure, to stop, you know, us falling into the trap of saying, it's just a bit of sun, it's no big deal. To remind us in the words of an earlier Sun Smart campaign that every bit of sun is doing you damage. And spiritually speaking, the passage before us contains a similarly confronting and direct message that there is, if you will, a spiritual cancer affecting all of us. And that if left unchecked, it will, if dismissed as not that big a deal, it will grow. It will grow throughout our whole heart into our lives with deadly results. And this is a message for all of us, irrespective of who you are, whether you consider yourself to be the most pagan person going around, as someone once described themselves to me, or you consider yourself to be the most law-abiding, church-going person there is. The message of Joshua 7 is a message we all need to hear. But like the Cancer Council campaign, hard as it may be to hear those things, the message of Joshua 7 does provide us with an opportunity to act before it's too late, an opportunity ultimately to renew our hope, to renew our lives. 
So let's look a bit more closely at the passage, kind of just overview it, and then we'll make a few observations about what it's saying to us. It's a sparingly, but, but I think kind of masterfully put together narrative. The passage is in basically in two parts, not so much the two parts that James and Johanna read. Really, it's the first five verses and then everything that follows. The first five verses chart the events leading up to and including this unexpected and devastating loss that Israel experiences to the men of Ai. And then the rest of the passage charts the fallout of that loss. We see the despair on the part of Israel. We see the questioning on the part of their leader, Joshua. We see the revelation by God of the reason for this defeat. And at the end, we see the confronting solution for the whole episode. And so that we don't interpret Israel's defeat wrongly, you know, perhaps as the result of some rash planning or some overconfidence on the part of Israel, the writer informs us up front that because of the actions of a man named Achan, God's anger now burns against the Israelites. Verse 1. The Israelites were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart. And as a result, God's anger is burning against Israel. And when God's anger is against you, you are not going to have success. What's so, what could have caused such a dramatic change in God's posture towards his people? Well, right here we, we learn a very sobering truth. A sobering truth that, that sin and God's anger are inextricably linked. That to sin is necessarily to place yourself under God's just anger, whether you realize that's what you're doing or not. And just the thought of this should give us, should give us pause to thought. If sin is the spiritual cancer that affects us all, then we are all, every one of us, subject to God's anger. We are all, as the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Ephesians, by nature, objects of wrath. That's serious. That is serious language. And what the writer of Joshua is telling us up front is that is the seriousness of sin. This is further highlighted by the fact that in God's eyes, it's Israel that has acted unfaithfully regarding the things set apart. We're told it's Achan, but it's also Israel that has sinned. The whole nation, this is the corrupting nature of sin. Achan's act has defiled the entire camp. Like a bit of yeast in a batch of dough. But God eventually communicates all of this to an almost despairing Joshua. We see Joshua almost despairing but not quite if he's on the verge of despair it's because he can't understand how this could have happened it doesn't add up it doesn't add up based on the lord's character based on his promises based on his actions so far but even if he's on the verge of despair note something about it he despairs before the lord he cries out in prayer to a degree, he's complaining about what's happened, but he does so to God, directly. He does so because he knows that God is in control. This is an act of faith, what he's doing. And so he questions God, honestly and emotionally and brokenly, about this baffling and disheartening turn of events. Have you ever prayed to God like that? 
Take heart from Joshua's prayer. And you know what? God answers Joshua's prayer. Yes, he's curt with Joshua. Stand up. Why are you on the ground? But his answer is itself an act of kindness. Joshua is not left groping in the dark for the reason for this calamity. It all becomes crystal clear. Israel has sinned. Can you imagine the penny dropping for Joshua? Kind of like, how, how did I not think that that might have been part of the issue? And we're told they've sinned in a particular way. By taking some of the things that were set apart for destruction, Israel has themselves become set apart for destruction. This is why they can't defeat their enemies. God's just anger, which we've seen burned against Jericho, now burns against his own people. But God's intent is not to remain in his anger. Because God created the world and he called his people out of love. And because of his boundless love for his people, God's desire is not to abandon them, though he threatens to do so. No, his desire is to provide Joshua and Israel with an opportunity to take the drastic action that is needed to turn away his just anger. The solution? Propitiation. It's a bit of a funny word. It simply means the act of turning aside divine anger by means of a sacrifice, almost always. And God says you need to destroy the things that are set apart. You need to remove them and those who are responsible for taking them. And so God gives Joshua this public process of elimination to go through, through which he will reveal who among the Israelites is personally responsible. Of course, we already know that, don't we? We've been told that. And that's what the process reveals. Achan, son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. Even just listing back those generations, we see this is bigger than one man. And Joshua charges Achan to make a confession to God. And Achan does. He tells it all. What he stole, why he stole it, where it's hidden. His sin is now well and truly out in the open. And the judgment that follows. It's a graphic reminder of the seriousness of sin in God's sight, isn't it? In a deeply confronting and unsettling final scene, Achan and all that is his, his family, his possessions, his livestock, it's taken to a valley and put to death. They're stoned to death, we're told, by all Israel, probably not all 1.5 to 2 million of them, but enough to represent all Israel. You know, in a way that all Israel were made to sin by Achan's theft, all Israel participate in removing that sin. And finally, the bodies are burned and stones heaped upon them. A grisly monument for the trouble that sin has brought upon God's people. And with the sin atoned for, the very last thing, at last the Lord turns from his burning anger. It's a confronting account. It's a distressing account. Far more confronting and distressing than a straight-talking cancer council ad. It's confronting because we are made to see, whether we want to or not, we are made to see just how serious a problem sin is by seeing how seriously God takes it. In seeing God's anger at sin, 
it's distressing because we're forced to contend with the severity and the totality of God's judgment of sin. And so having reflected on this passage, we can see a number of things, making a couple of observations that help us understand what is going on and what we need to learn from it. The first thing we learn is the nature of sin. It's important for us to understand the nature of sin. That it's, na- that it's twofold. That the nature of sin is that it's fundamentally self-serving. Fundamentally self-serving. And that it's inherently deceptive. At least that's how it's expressed here in this passage. Fundamentally self-serving and inherently deceptive. In his confession, Achan describes his sin this way, doesn't he? He says, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, 200 silver shekels and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. I coveted them. I desired that which was not mine and I took it. Achan saw, Achan desired, Achan took. And you may have noticed that is strikingly similar to the account of humankind's first sin as recounted for us in Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Adam and Eve saw, Adam and Eve desired, Adam and Eve took. didn't matter what God had told them. Sin is fundamentally self-serving. God is either actively rejected with raised fist or, or merely edited out. And gone unchecked, undealt with sin produces an ever-increasing self-serving, self-centeredness, doesn't it? I mean, Achan knew the command of God with regard to the things set apart. That was a command given to all Israel. They knew they were working as one. Do not take these things. And he took them. As if he did not pause to consider how these actions might have an effect on the rest of his fellow Israelites. Sin is fundamentally self-serving. Secondly, sin is inherently deceptive. That is key to what sin is. What gives sin its power. By its very nature, sin produces guilt and shame as you know you've done wrongdoing. And so the desire to cover up that wrongdoing is extremely powerful. Just like when sin entered the world for the first time. What happens? The man and woman realize they're naked and they feel shame. So they cover themselves up. They attempt to hide their crime. They attempt to hide even from God himself. Achan takes the set-apart things. And what does he do? Does he leave them outside his tent for his fellow Israelites to see? No, he takes them into his tent. He digs a massive hole in the ground. He buries them in the ground, puts cloaks over the top of them. He and very possibly his family hides his crime. Perhaps they're thinking they can even hide it from God. And if we understand the nature of sin as something which thrives and grows stronger and more corrupting in secret, then our attitude towards sin will will become more robust. Our attitude towards sin in our lives will be more like the no-nonsense attitude of the Cancer Council towards UV rays. We'll understand that every bit of sin is doing us damage. We'll take to heart the fact that there is no such thing as a healthy, hidden sin. 
You need to hear that tonight. There is no such thing as a healthy, hidden sin. And this leads us to the, the other aspect of sin's deceptiveness. The deceptiveness of self. The deceptiveness of sin causes us to minimise its destructive influence in our lives and the power that it can have over us and the consequences of that. It's the lie that the serpent whispers to Eve, you will not surely die. Whatever you do, the consequences won't be that bad. And so Adam and Eve ate the fruit and Achan took a few of the set-apart things. Now the fact is, those of us among those of us here tonight who are Christian believers... We have taken sin seriously, seriously enough to come to our God in repentance and faith. But we live daily with the reality of sin in our lives. And I, I wonder, what is that experience like for you? Is it a struggle? Because it, it should be. It should be a struggle. How seriously do you take your ongoing battle with sin? Do you wrestle with your sin? with the sin that is in your life? Do you pray to God for the grace to overcome your sin or do you just let it happen? You think, it's not going to be that big a deal. I can handle it. In his first letter to the churches in Asia, the Apostle Peter writes, be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. That is, that is the seriousness of sin. And we deceive ourselves if we think that that is not what is happening when we let it fester. Do you need more accountability in your life? There are practical things we can do. Maybe someone that you trust, that you can share with one another the various ways that you struggle with sin. Pray for that. Pray for God to be at work. Keep it out in the open. That is the nature of sin. Achan's story is the story of someone devoured by sin, by an adversary he didn't take seriously. So that's the nature of sin. It's fundamentally self-serving. It's inherently deceptive. We see that in this, in this account. We also learn of the reality of judgment. The judgment on sin depicted here is perhaps the most confronting aspect of the whole passage. Israel go into a battle that they are destined to lose. Lives will be lost. Achan and all that he has is set apart for destruction. The penalty each time is death. And so we are uneasy with the prospect of God's judgment. Mike helped us meditate on that last week. And I think our unease about God's judgment of sin is linked to our understanding of the nature of sin and our comprehension of God's true majestic holiness. If our default is to minimize sin and its severity, then we're not going to understand why God takes the severe action that he does. If we struggle to comprehend God's utter holiness, then we are always going to fail to see how our sin is worthy of complete banishment before him. And we see here, I think that we see here three reasons why God's judgment is what it is, why it's so severe, why it's death. It's death because, death is the judgment because in its rejection of our creator God, sin cuts us off from the giver and sustainer of life. That's just what sin does. The first sin brought human death into the world. Paul speaks in Romans 6, 23, 
of death as the wages of sin, what sin earns. Sin naturally embraces death. We shouldn't be surprised that that is part of the judgment on sin. That's one reason. A second reason, you may remember from last week, that what God is, is doing here in this conquest is effectively an act of recreation. Sin had defiled this part of the world for generations, and God is now judging that. There are echoes of the flood event, where He's taking away the sin, re-establishing His people. And God cannot risk it being defiled again at this early stage. But this isn't something that's, that's stuck here in Joshua 7. We see this recurring in the New Testament. Last year, for those of, us who are, those of you who are here, doing the Recharge series from the book of Acts, you may remember a similarly confronting account early on in the book, in chapter 5, of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who do something very similar to what Achan does. They keep money for themselves. They lie, Peter says, the Apostle Peter says, to the Holy Spirit. And they are judged accordingly. And so here at this stage in, in Israel's recreation of the land, God must treat sin as the cancer that it is. He needs to act drastically to cut it out before it infects and corrupts and defiles everything else. That's the second reason why God judges as he does. And the third reason is corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity. Achan's whole family, they were possibly complicit in what Achan did. In fact, it's very likely they were. You can't imagine all that stuff being hidden in their tent and them not knowing it. But also, the reason why Achan's family is judged is because of the principle of corporate solidarity. See, Israel was considered a single entity in covenant relationship with God. Achan was the head of his family. Something like a one for all and all for one. A bit like a sports team. And in a bit like a sports team, people, one person can do a really great thing and everyone benefits. One person can also muck up and everyone doesn't benefit, everyone loses. God brings blessings to entire families. And God brings judgment to entire families. God brings blessings to entire peoples. And God brings judgment to entire peoples. And there we see this, not limited to this event, to this family. This is embedded in the human race because we are all under the curse of sin. And we're all under the curse of sin because why? Because Adam sinned. That's the ultimate judgment of corporate solidarity. And yet even in this, even in this there is hope. What does Paul write in Romans? For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And that points us to the hope of the cross. The hope of the cross. Even in the judgment on Israel there is hope. God provides a way through. At the point that Joshua learns about Achan's sin, all Israel is under significant judgment. God has threatened to remove his presence from them. Can you imagine that? That's the great promise of chapter 1. I will be with you. This is bad. But God provides a way through. Tragic as it is, God's righteous anger is able to be turned away when Achan's sin is atoned for. 
line is drawn underneath the sea. And God and Israel can go forward in relationship again. Of course, once in the land, in the generations to come, if you know your Old Testament history, God's righteous anger would again and again be aroused against Israel. As they would again and again violate his covenant with them. And again and again they would reject God's rightful rule over them. And again and again God's anger would have to be turned away as that sin was dealt with. Ultimately this reached an untenable climax in the historical event known as the exile. Exile. Israel were taken out of the land. The land that he is in the process of giving them here in Joshua. And so all of this points to the fact that God has always had something more lasting, something better in mind, something new, a new covenant that he's going to make with his people. And in Jeremiah chapter 30, Jeremiah was a prophet near the end of Israel's time before the exile and with the exile looming God gave him this revelation and this is what he says to God's people this is what he says to us who read back on this look the days are coming this is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt a covenant they broke even though I had married them the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and Never again remember their sin. Never again remember their sin. So like the Cancer Council campaign, hard as it may be to hear, the serious news of Joshua 7 points us to the better news. Points us to this great day. This great day is the day that we live in. We do not need to fear the judgment for sin that Achan brought upon himself and his family and all Israel. Because our sin and God's anger towards it has already been judged once and for all. The great promise of Jeremiah 31, a hope that's only a shadow in Joshua 7. Where does it find its fulfillment? In Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. Its promise of life is realized in Jesus' resurrection. And its hope of changed hearts is found in the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself who will come and live in the hearts of his believers, helping us to say no to sin and yes to him. And so, as the Apostle John so wonderfully says in 1 John 2, to Christian believers struggling to live out their faith in a sinful world, he says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. What does Joshua 7 remind us? 
we need to take sin seriously. But what does this always point, also point us towards? We also need to take salvation seriously. We need to take our sin seriously, but we need to take our salvation seriously. That's why we do things like confession. Hopefully you do confession. You confess sin to God personally in your life. But also when we gather together, we say it aloud. We're not hiding or denying our sin like Achan did. Instead, openly acknowledging that even as God's people, we don't live His way. But we acknowledge that and we confess that in light of the great truth that in Jesus, we stand forgiven. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we're going to do shortly. That's what we remember, that at the cross, Jesus himself was set apart for destruction in our place. We can know that God has forgiven our wrongdoing and will never again remember our sin. So take the serious message of Joshua 7 to heart. Take sin seriously. But also take to heart the certain hope of the cross. Take your salvation seriously. It has been hard won by Jesus. Take it seriously and rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you that we can know that you are perfectly holy and just and that you judge sin. But help us to know that in Jesus, we can be forgiven. I pray that you may uh, speak to each of us here where we're at. If we've not yet given our lives to you, Lord, may you work in our hearts to help us recognize our need for your forgiveness. Call upon your mercy. If we've already done that, help us to grow in our faith and our trust in Jesus and our thankfulness to him. In his name we pray. Amen.